HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet N3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Melissa Fuster, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue features articles and special sections on ingredients from salmon to chicken, taste and technology in East Asia, and excursions, an exploration of food and mobility. As well, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID dispatches, short portraits of early responses to the food crisis of this pandemic. For six weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. Our guest this week is John Gifford, who will be talking more about his article, Salmon at the Table. John Gifford is a writer and photographer. He is the author of Pecan America, Exploring a Cultural Icon, published by the University Press of Kansas uh, 2019, and Red Dirt Country, Field Notes and Essays on Nature, from the University of Oklahoma Press 2019. His essays on food and nature have appeared in Southwest Review, The Atlantic, Kestrel, and Notre Dame Magazine. John, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Melissa. Glad to be here. Good. Okay, so uh, I wanted to begin by uh, learning more about your work. How, how do you first get interested in, in Salmon? How, how does this fit with your other work in photo- photography and writing? Uh, my work, uh, especially in the last uh, five years, seems to center uh, uh, especially on food and nature, and sometimes at the intersection of food and nature. 
And um, salmon was, uh, it wasn't really my uh, initial focus. I uh, traveled, my wife and I traveled to Vancouver Island in uh, the spring of 2019 uh, with the idea of photographing uh, wildlife and uh, some of the island's landscapes uh, and some of the seascapes and, and just nature photography, basically. And of course, while we were there, we, uh, we learned about the salmon farms we encountered in uh, Clayoquot Sound. Uh, this uh, enormous, uh, beautiful wilderness uh, off the Pacific coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, they were quite unexpected because they were these uh, large industrial uh, facilities in, in an otherwise pristine wilderness. And uh, and my you know initial thought uh, at the time, having done a little bit of uh, work in uh, writing about agriculture, the uh, Pecan America book you'd mentioned uh, being the latest example of that, I was uh, under the impression that because it was uh, aquaculture and salmon farming, uh, it was necessarily a positive thing because uh, aquaculture is, is helping uh, uh, alleviate stress on beleaguered wild populations of fish worldwide. Uh, and so I thought uh, a salmon farm here in the Pacific Northwest where there are native salmon must be a good thing, but I was uh, informed otherwise. And <laughs> I kind of started a, a, an educational journey about this this business that I've uh, learned a lot about in the year or year and a half since this trip. So it was it was enlightening to say the least. No, definitely. And it's very interesting that what you do in the piece to, to show us that. Um, and I wanted to, if you can tell us more for our listeners, um, in the opening of the article, you, you, you talk about this voyage in this uh, biosphere in Vancouver, where you first encounter the, the aquaculture farm. For many of us that haven't seen these, these farms, these structures, can you tell us more about it? What, what was your, your experience, that first encounter? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was quite unexpected. You're uh, back in this sound, which is um, like a um, something like a, a, a vast uh, and wild bay. Uh, you're you're uh, you're surrounded on on all sides by coastal temperate rainforest, uh, and these waters are, are wild. They're teeming with or used to be uh, teeming with wild salmon. And uh, my guide, Captain Mike White, uh, who um, whose boat, the Browning Passage, we were aboard that day, a cabin cruiser. He takes guests out into uh, into this area for photography. And uh, he informed us that about once a month, he sees uh, orcas or killer whales in this area, in these waters. Uh, they're hunting for salmon, he says. Um, uh, we didn't see any on my trip, but we saw bald eagles, uh, uh, black bears, um, uh, evidence of wolves, um, just a little of everything, it seemed, except the uh, orcas. But uh, at some point, um, we saw something just completely out of place in this setting, and it was uh, an enormous, uh, maybe a football-size uh, uh, net enclosure. It, went, it was accompanied by some uh, uh, small buildings, everything floating, of course, um, colorful buoys on the perimeter, and it just looks strange. And I was told, oh, that's a salmon farm. And that's, uh, there are several of them here in Clayoquot Sound. And uh, it was owned, I learned, by uh, CERMAC, which, uh, as I understand, is a subsidiary of the Mitsubishi Corporation of Japan. So when I learned this, I was uh, taken aback uh, initially that uh, big business had, had infiltrated somehow <laughs> the pristine wilderness. It was, it was really an incredible sight. And uh, one I thought... Uh, was out of place, but I initially accepted it because, as I mentioned, I thought the uh, 
raising of, of farm salmon to meet a, a worldwide demand for seafood was a positive thing. But uh, as I later learned, it was uh, not exactly what it seemed. Yeah, no, and we, we do get, even as I was reading the piece, I was myself surprised that you begin by describing this amazing natural wilder, wilderness and then suddenly the, this farm that it, it blows my mind further that you mentioned that, that it's the size of a, of a football field, you said? That's a rough estimate, and it was a lot larger than you might think of a netted uh, enclosure. Uh, they call these uh, net pin enclosures. Uh, they're they're, they're uh, fences of netting that completely enclose the salmon. Um, and I don't recall whether they're uh, enclosed on the top or not, but I think they may be because of uh, the uh, eagles and other uh, raptors that uh, would otherwise try and prey on these uh, on these salmon. Um, but uh, they're pretty well protected and um, they just, it just strikes you because they're so out of place in the wilderness. And was it, was it crowded or uh, were you able to see, I don't know how the condition of the, of the salmon within the enclosure? We didn't get that close. Um, I can only imagine because I later learned that a uh, hundred plus thousand, sometimes more salmon are, are packed into these enclosures in very tight confines So I'm sure it was very crowded had we ventured closely enough, but we didn't get that close. I, I would assume the um, uh, the caretakers or the guardians of this uh, enterprise probably wouldn't appreciate visitors getting that close. Yeah, and, and taking pictures, I also guess, and taking right? Taking pictures. I did, I did <laughs> snap a photo. Uh, I don't know that I'll ever use it, but, uh, you know, there may come a time when it uh, serves a, a, an article or an essay that I write. But uh, it, was, uh, it was just a little bit... Um, surprising to me to see this and it was my I, I've known about aquaculture but never in a wilderness setting so this is a new uh, experience for me and I think everyone aboard our, our, our boat that day we had uh, maybe six or eight of us that day on the boat wow um no and definitely again also a surprise for for me and I'm guessing for a lot of our listeners and and I wanted if you can share more because you do mention for example that you had conversation with, with local fishermen about the salmon. And um, I was also surprised when one of them mentioned that uh, they, they go, the, the salmon moves, they, they take it to Japan, right? Um, yes, these were, uh, these, this was later, a few days later, and these were actually crab fishermen. They, uh, we, my wife and I, uh, one of my uh, uh, interests is in photographing uh, fishing harbors, and we found a, a fishing dock full of uh, a commercial fleet of crab boats. Uh, and the and the crab fishermen, we some some didn't want to visit with us, uh, but we found a few who were uh, very friendly and open to uh, to chatting with us. And uh, they told us that uh, the crab that they caught, I believe it was blue crab. I I can't recall uh, for sure, but I believe it was blue crab that they had been fishing for. And it was two uh, o'clock in the afternoon uh, on a weekday. They had, had already been out since early that morning, caught their, caught their, you know, their crab had uh, brought it back and it, it had already been uh, sent for shipment to Japan. He told me all of their crab they catch goes straight to Japan. So um, I know Japan has a, a voracious appetite for seafood. It's a huge part of the culture in that country. And I'm, I've been made to understand that they scour the world's oceans, uh, searching for, you know, enough fish to uh, appease their appetites, uh, not only in Japan, but probably worldwide too. But, um, but this was evidence uh, for me that uh, 
the, the hunt for uh, seafood is now a global game. This is uh, no longer confined to uh, national waters, but but international and global waters. Everything was, uh, you know, with today's technology um, um, aboard these uh, fishing vessels, commercial fishing vessels, then I, I suppose no uh, area in the world's oceans is off limits anymore. Can you, I don't know if you have other anecdotes or something that, that you know, didn't make it to the piece about these interactions with, with the fishermen, about their attitudes or, or perceptions about uh, aquaculture and this, this global trade? Well, um, I didn't, uh, I, I spoke with a few locals, but I got a lot of my information about this from uh, from the boat captain and from my photography guides who knew uh, quite a lot about this. Uh, they, uh, they gave me kind of a crash course in aquaculture. And then after my trip, I, upon my return home, I, uh, I began my research and, uh, I learned that there's, you know, um, a big business salmon farming going on there in British Columbia, which I had seen and, and witnessed. And, uh, much the same in the uh, countries of Chile and I believe Norway. Uh, um, and I don't know that all of it is uh, owned and operated by the same company uh, or just different companies, but it's a big business. And uh, it seems to, uh, the detrimental type of salmon farming or what I've been made to understand is detrimental to the environment is this open water net pen aquaculture in which uh, farmed fish are raised in the same uh, environment as wild fish. And um, wild salmon today are uh, just beleaguered by so many different factors. And uh, um, I've been made to understand this is one of them. Uh, And with a commercial salmon farm um, growing this uh, salmon on this magnitude, um, you've got, uh, like I said, you know, tens of thousands, maybe a hundred or more thousand fish in in a netted pen enclosure. And uh, these enclosures, of course, are open to seawater. The seawater is free to flow through the net um, and it's tidally uh, influenced. And so when the tide comes in, it can really spread these uh, uh, effluents, these unnatural uh, uh, concentrations of effluents that can uh, carry disease or, or whatnot and, uh, and, and reach wild populations of fish. And so um, because of the environment these fish are being formed in, they're, they're being raised in the same environment as wild salmon and wild salmon are subjected to, if there's a disease in the, uh, in the population of farmed salmon that could easily transmit to the wild, wild fish. And, uh, there's a lot of feelings there in Tofino and Vancouver Island locally there, uh, as well as elsewhere that, uh, wherever you find farmed salmon, wild salmon, uh, I've heard it mentioned more than once are in decline. And, um, a few months after my visit to Vancouver Island, I understand there was a uh, massive fish kill at these same Clayoquot Sound salmon farms. Um, uh, just hundreds, of, uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of uh, dead salmon. Um, and it was the media reports uh, a few months later blamed it on uh, an algae bloom. And uh, it just affected all of these uh, farm salmon and, and if there were any wild salmon in the vicinity, it seems plausible it would have affected them as well. We don't know this, of course. I don't know this. I, I'm not uh, uh, privy to that kind of information. But um, it's just uh, another threat uh, for the wild salmon, which are finding it harder and harder to uh, to survive uh, anymore in these environments. So, you know, it's uh, 
dams, it's uh, other habitat degradation, and now it's commercial aquaculture um, challenging them just for uh, their very survival. And I talked to a salmon expert not long ago, and he told me that that among the mid-latitude, so he's describing that as California, the Pacific Northwest, and Vancouver Island, um, populations of wild salmon in this area is a, a paltry uh, roughly one to seven percent of historical numbers, so it's uh, crashed significantly. Um, he did say that uh, wild salmon in northern latitudes, Alaska, for example, or seem to be doing pretty well. And um, interestingly, um, salmon appear wild salmon appear to be uh, spreading uh, their territory in the Arctic Ocean, which uh, makes sense because of climate change. They need uh, cool, um, clean water both in the ocean and in freshwater streams for spawning. So uh, they seem to be doing well there. But uh, here in the mid-latitudes, um, not, not so much. And uh, it's, it's disturbing to hear this. I, um, I know that they used to offer uh, sport fishing for salmon in the Clayoquot Sound and these waters off Vancouver Island. And I understand that uh, that is no longer the case. Over the last two years, I think that uh, that industry and these recreational opportunities for those so inclined have been... Uh, uh, have been uh, terminated because uh, the salmon are in such low numbers. The numbers of returning salmon each year just get fewer and fewer. And it's a, it's a, it's a biological emergency, basically, is what we have up there and, and probably in other areas around the world. Definitely. And, and yes, we, we are going to be talking about the, the wild salmon aspect and uh, the, the, the fishermen uh, further. But first, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Melissa Fuster, talking with John Gifford about his article, Salmon on the Table available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Before the break, uh, John, you shared with us your experience encountering aquaculture, the, the salmon farm in Vancouver. In your piece, 
You contrast this experience with your encounter of wild salmon fishing in, in Michigan. Can you tell us more about this, this second encounter that you write about with the two young boys fishing for, for salmon? I can, and I will. Uh, first, I'd, I'd like to uh, delineate just briefly uh, between the uh, commercial aquaculture in a wilderness setting or uh, this open water aquaculture I experienced in uh, Vancouver Island and land-based aquaculture, which uh, critics of uh, uh, wilderness aquaculture of open water uh, net pen salmon farming uh, all seem to agree that uh, it's not aquaculture itself that's harmful. It's just where it's being done. And uh, if you, we can find a way to move these operations into a, an isolated area on land where they're separated from wild populations, then uh, uh, while that comes with an added expense of operational equipment and so forth, um, that's actually better for the salmon, the wild salmon and in uh, the, the environment. And so uh, as different as those two seem to be, my experience in northern Michigan, um, watching uh, uh, two young men uh, from a, a local Ottawa tribe hunt salmon with a spear was was vastly different and, and equally surprising to me. I was uh, in northern Michigan last autumn photographing along a stream. I was trying to capture some of the region's autumn colors. It was they're just stunning there. I've never been anywhere where the autumn colors are as beautiful as they are in northern Michigan, and I was photographing along a small creek about a mile from its confluence with Lake Michigan. When I noticed movement, I looked down the stream and two, uh, two boys were walking up the stream in waders. Uh, one of them had a, the older one had a spear in his hands. And so I knew right away what they were doing, but my surprise was how could there be any salmon in this small waterway? This is a tiny waterway and the uh, water uh, no more than two feet deep at, you know, the deepest part of the, the pool in front of me. And I went down and talked with the boys and uh, their mother was with them. She was on the bank. And after they continued on, uh, I spoke with her. And uh, this is part of their uh, cultural tradition of uh, uh, finding food as a way of subsistence fishing, uh, so to speak, for winter. It's just a matter of survival for them. The winters are long and cold in northern Michigan. And here's a resource available to them. They were able to uh, take advantage of that. And um, the, what surprised me was the older boy, the one with the spear, was teaching his younger brother how to do this. And uh, he seemed very confident that there would be a salmon uh, up ahead in this pool. And I was, I was again, surprised that his, not only at his confidence, but that there could be any salmon in the pool. But while I was uh, conversing with his mother, the two boys went up ahead and uh, Sure, you know, sure enough, here a moment later, they, they flushed uh, what turned out to be two salmon. They got one of them and one of them escaped downstream. And this was not a small salmon. This was a, a 10, 12 pound salmon. And uh, afterwards, he was very proud. He came out of the water, hoisted his fish. And this was uh, something that was going to feed them this winter. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it was just a, a, a hyper-local type of fishing, one uh, that uh, the consumer was just actively involved in procuring, in this case, his, his dinner, his future dinner that impressed me. He went out and he took matters into his own hands and he went and, and, uh, and he caught a salmon for his dinner. And um, he could have gone off after the other one, but he didn't. He had one and, and he felt that was was sufficient or satisfactory. And uh, after we uh, visited with them for a while, they got in their pickup and, and left with their salmon and went home. And uh, 
um, it was just the, the personal nature of uh, what I'd seen of, uh, of this family uh, rallying around this, this tradition and, and being so actively and directly involved in procuring their food that was so impressive to me. And, and they were keeping their cultural tradition alive. I understand that uh, salmon were introduced into the Great Lakes in the 1960s, so they're not native here. But for a couple of generations now, uh, uh, First Nations have been uh, relying on this resource as a way to feed themselves in the winter. And before the salmon, I understand that they did the same with other fish like walleye. So spear fishing was a way for them to uh, collect protein uh, for, their, for the winter. And uh, they were carrying on that tradition. And I thought that was, uh, I thought that was impressive, uh, especially in today's... Um, culture where we just, uh, we rely on others to feed us essentially. And these uh, young men were out there uh, with their spear and their waders and they were willing to get dirty to, to get their food. And that was, that was uh, honorable. Yes. And, and you do mention that um, members of the first nations uh, do have those, those fishing rights uh, secured by, by law. Yes. But then is we, if we know from some of the U S history these treaties uh, or, or treaties that have happened with, uh, you know, in Canada and also here in the U.S. are not always honored, unfortunately, throughout throughout history. So, did, when I don't know if when you had the conversation with with the mother or in some of your other research, how, what is the status of of this fishing rights? Do you did you see that they were in danger or or anything going on around that? Um, I'm not aware of any uh, uh, imminent threats to uh, fishing rights. As I understand, uh, you mentioned that I think it was an 1836 Treaty of Washington uh, essentially guarantees the fishing rights for the First Nations um, uh, tribes and uh, in this area. And because of that, they were able to procure a, a, a permit to hunt spear or a, a spearfish uh, for salmon. And I did phone the uh, uh, visit with a representative from the uh, Department of natural resources in Michigan. And I was uh, uh, under the impression or led to understand that uh, not anyone can go uh, and, and get one of these spearfishing permits. I believe these are limited to uh, First Nations, um, and you, they, but they still have to have a, pr a permit to do this. Uh, and it's for a short time at a certain time of the year. Uh, and it's just a way for them to uh, um, uh, realize and, and preserve their cultural history, uh, as I understand. Um, and I, I thought it was impressive, as I said, you know, so many ways today we've uh, we've kind of turned to others to provide our food. But uh, when you see someone willing to go out and, and get their own food, that's, that's something to uh, it gets my attention. And it's just something to, uh, to witness. And, and you did mention that um, that that there, there have been in the past, in the recent past, some proposals for aquaculture to come into the area. Right. Yes, that was uh, my understanding. I, um, in visiting with the uh, gentleman uh, from the Department of Natural Resources in Michigan, I was told that uh, a few years ago, uh, a proposal was made to introduce uh, commercial open water net pen salmon farming into the Great Lakes. So if this would have passed, it would have been uh, um, the, the same uh, scenario as what we saw in Vancouver Island. And uh, but the differences here, uh, as I understand, was there was a strong opposition from local sport fishing groups that um, that eventually uh, put down this proposal, and uh, uh, and so it seems uh, unlikely to occur here anytime soon, just because of the strong resistance against it. 
and I should say that there is uh, definitely strong resistance against what's going on in Vancouver Island. Um, a, a few months, I mentioned this earlier, but a few months after my visit there in the spring of 2019, was there was a, a, a rally of uh, local residents, um, First Nations leaders and others uh, basically protesting uh, against the uh, salmon farming going on there in Clayoquot Sound. And um, I think their their anger and their frustration was uh, prescient because uh, of the eventual salmon kill that happened that autumn, uh, last autumn. Um, And so uh, I don't know where it stands now, whether anything's being done differently or plans to uh, um, eliminate salmon farming, commercial salmon farming, or at least aquaculture, uh, uh, salmon aquaculture from this area. But uh, at the time, there there was strong opposition against that as well. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you if you can talk a little bit more about the the local sport fishing groups. I'm wondering, and I, I you know I should say I I'm a I'm a city girl. Like I I don't know so much about fishing, so some of this comes from this curiosity about how these groups interact. Um, meaning, uh, if if there is a, for example, do the local uh, the the sport fishing groups. Do they, for example, collaborate with the First Nation tribes to to try to prevent uh, aquaculture coming in? Do do they talk to each other? Are they overlaps between these groups? I, I don't know the answer to that. I would as, I would assume they do to some extent because they have a common interest in uh, this resource, this salmon resource. Uh, resource. Uh, one is uh, obviously for food, but. Um, uh, the Great Lakes salmon fishery has grown into a very strong commercial industry. You can go to uh, Michigan, for example, and you can uh, hire a captain to take you out on a, a sport fishing charter uh, for salmon in, in Lake Michigan, and I'm sure many of the other uh, uh, Great Lakes. Uh, but uh, it's a it's a it's big business, and it's something that um, uh, that has contributed a lot to the economy of the Great Lakes states. And so, uh, introducing commercial aquaculture to the Great Lakes ostensibly would have uh, opened the uh, opened the pathway to potential, you know, disease transmission or any of the other uh, um, uh, undesirable effects of uh, large-scale open water commercial aquaculture. And so their uh, uh, resistance, their strong resistance to this eventually, uh, essentially is a saved, uh, uh, at least for the time, saved their uh, commercial salmon fishing industry. Yeah, you know, I very interesting how this this groups and opposition um, worked out, and so when you when you ended the 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 article, I like that you end with a <clears throat> with a hopeful note for the preservation of fishing, um, seeing this as a cultural tradition to be passed, like you mentioned from the older young man to to the younger brother. Um, but at the same time, I think, of course, that that we all have a stake in the in the future of wild salmon, as we're all connected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how how where do you think people are about these these connections or or the consequences of the loss of of the wild salmon outside from these areas? I think um, because of our culture um, and, and society today being how it is with, um, you know, we're no longer primarily an agrarian society. We, uh, most of us live in urban areas and suburban areas today, and we uh, go to the grocery store for our food rather than raising it or, or procuring it ourselves. And um, 
as I mentioned earlier, when you see someone else out doing that and, and, and securing their own dinner, uh, it really um, it gets your attention. I've seen this um, I've seen this in Florida and in other places. Um, you know, I, I recall in um, one time on the Gulf Coast of Florida, out on a fishing pier that goes out into the Gulf, uh, a mother and uh, her son or teenage son fishing, and like there were other people fishing that day, but. I, for some reason, I, I was attracted to them because uh, uh, the, the teenager, the son had a, 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 a quite a large fish on the line and I went over to see if I could help him land it. And so uh, I was able to help him land this mackerel, I think it was, and it was a, a quite a large mackerel. I pulled it up from the, uh, from the water all the way up to the pier. I gave him the, <laughs> I gave him the fish and uh, I thought they would just put it in an ice chest or whatever and keep fishing like everyone else. And instead they had their dinner and that was enough for them. They grabbed their gear and, and went straight home. And uh, that struck me as they were out here looking for dinner. This is a way for them to, to feed themselves. And it's that way in, uh, in the great lakes and, uh, and other, other places. And I just think that when you see uh, um, a tradition like uh, uh, First Nations uh, members uh, out, you know, hunting for salmon for their for their winter uh, food, a winter food source. It really gets you, and uh, it shows you um, things haven't gotten so far out of whack that they can't do this any longer. Uh, and you also think too about the salmon; they're a lot like us. They're uh, navigating these uh, increasingly. Uh, uh, shallow waters, narrow, narrow channels, uh, trying to uh, ascend these uh, streams to reproduce. Um, uh, but it's becoming harder and harder to do because of the dams and other impediments that we've put in their place. And so until you see this in person, you just think your salmon comes from the grocery store, I think, or your fishmonger. <laughs> you don't think about exactly the, uh, the environment it came from or the uh, effort that went into securing it. But um, I don't know. I just, I was really impressed by watching these young men. And, um, and it's not that it was fishing or anything so much as it was just the cultural tradition of uh, what they've been taught, what they've lived and known and their parents and grandparents have lived and known and that they were willing to put on waders and go out and get wet and dirty and, and carry on this tradition to, uh, um, uh, to feed themselves was, was very impressive to me. And, um, I, I think that's easily lost in, um, in all the noise and, uh, uh, distractions that we have in our society today. We, you know, we might overlook something this simple, but it's so vital to who we are. Definitely. And I really like that you emphasize in, in, in these stories, the idea that they take from nature what they need and not more, which is something I think, uh, we, we don't tend to do, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is something beyond the salmon that, that we need to, to remember from, from stories like this. Well, there's so much we can learn from uh, uh, the residents who were here on this continent before most of us, uh, the First Nations, and uh, they have a history of, of living uh, in harmony with their environment and taking what they need, and their environment was always there for them and has always been there for them. And um, we can learn so much from that, that, uh, you know, among uh, uh, fishermen, there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of belief that uh, you need to catch only what you can eat for dinner that night. Don't, uh, you know, stock up your freezer or anything because uh, there's no need to do that. And the fish won't be as fresh in two months from now as they will tonight. And uh, and if you do that, then they'll be here the next time you want to catch them. And uh, I think that. Um, taking a, a larger vision, a larger view of what we're doing in the outdoors and with our environment uh, is so important and we can't forget that. Definitely. Um, and I wanted to to close with 
with one, I mean, it does relate to what we're talking about. One more question. What, I mean, based on your experience, uh, not only with this piece, but also your your other work, uh, taking nature photography, interacting with nature, um, what, what are some potential takeaways or or things that we as consumers need need to think about. And thinking, for example, of of some maybe some of our listeners. I know certainly my, myself. As I told you, I am in Brooklyn, New York. So fishing and all of that process is is alien for many of us. So what what can we do as we are selecting fish or just selecting our food moving forward? I think one of the things that uh, you can do that we can all do uh, is is question where your food comes from. Um, you know, like a lot of people, before I had this experience in Vancouver Island and learning about commercial aquaculture, I would go to the restaurant and if I saw salmon on the menu, frequently I would choose that. I love seafood and I, uh, I eat that more than beef or chicken or any other type of protein. And uh, when I would see salmon, I would order salmon. I never thought about where it came from. And I just thought, well, if it, I knew that there was aquaculture and salmon farming. And I just thought this was as good as, you know, one place was as good as anywhere else. And uh, it wasn't until I had this experience in Vancouver and began to understand the, the ramifications of open water net pen uh, aquaculture that I started to understand the uh, differences between farmed and wild salmon. And uh, well, I'm not opposed to eating farmed salmon at all, and I, I would welcome that. I think it's helpful to uh, um, to ask where your food comes from and, and maybe uh, express your, your wish or even demand that uh, um, that these uh, items, you know, your food is sustainably produced, sustainably caught, um, and what, as much as is as feasible. And uh, even, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of restaurants you can go to and, and find wild salmon, which in this uh, day and age of uh, imperiled uh, fish populations across our globe, it's, it's amazing to me that there are still such a large number and uh, healthy population of wild Pacific salmon off uh, Alaska, for example, that we can um, uh, go and enjoy that at a restaurant. I think um, just asking where your food comes from and uh, insisting that uh, your restaurant, the re restaurant manager, whomever, uh, is able to provide sustainably caught seafood because uh, that is something that you, you care about and that you do notice and that we all pay um, uh, we all vote, so to speak, with our wallets. Uh, if we're if we're buying wild food or wild salmon in this case, and uh, insisting on wild salmon, there's a market for that, and there's an incentive for our restaurants to carry wild salmon. Or and conversely, with uh, with farmed salmon, uh, there's an incentive for them to uh, to buy salmon that have been farmed ethically and sustainably, and maybe uh, land based systems that uh, do not threaten or imperil wild populations of salmon. It's just a matter of asking and talking and just expressing uh, your wishes to uh, to those in power to make a difference or uh, shape this. Definitely, and also I, I like exactly what you did, uh, taking the the interest in understanding a lot of these issues because they're very, very complex. As your as your piece uh, beautifully um, explained to us. Well, thank you. I I, um, I want to end by saying I, I I'm not opposed to uh, farm salmon at all, provided they're like I said, uh, produced sustainably uh, in a way that doesn't imperil. Um, wild populations of salmon. But I think among farm salmon and wild salmon, there is a difference. You can see a deeper red color with the wild fish and a more savory flavor, 
but then I'm someone who can appreciate the, uh, the delicacy and the uh, uh, maybe the more mild flavor of farm salmon. So I think there is a place for both of them. And I think there's a, a, a way for, for, for both to uh, coexist and uh, for the aquaculture industry to make uh, a good living uh, from producing salmon, but just producing them in the right way, a way that's going to uh, uh, be in harmony with our wild salmon or allow for the reintroduction and uh, um, health of our uh, wild salmon stocks. Yes, yes. So definitely it's not that clear about, yeah, it's just a matter of understanding this more. And and there, there, like you say, there could be ways of doing farm uh, fish, farm salmon in, in a good way also for the wild salmon. I've, uh, I've read about um, uh, a company in the Middle East, I believe it was, far from any wild stocks of salmon, producing farm salmon uh, in an aquarium made from an old ship's hull. I thought that was a, a kind of a wild uh, idea and enterprise, but apparently it's working for them. And so uh, this was just to, to contain the operation so that these uh, farm salmon are completely isolated from any, uh, any water, any native uh, fish populations, salmon or otherwise. I thought that was interesting. No, yes, it's so interesting. And I've learned so much from your article and even more from, from these conversations. Thank you, John, for, well, thank you. for joining us. Thank you for um, having me, Melissa. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. It's been a pleasure. And I also want to invite the listeners to, to read your article, your full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. It is already out, uh, volume 20.4. Um, and for more details, visit gastronomica.org. And again, you can read the full article and you also have really good uh, references for people that are interested in learning more then they can go and, and read those. Uh, so thank you again. Um, and I want to uh, just remind uh, our listeners to join us next week as we talk to Adrian Vitar on decoding miracle food cures for COVID-19. Thank you. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.